Siddhartha Gautama, the future Buddha, was born into the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribe in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains 25 centuries ago. Prior to his birth, 64 holy people gathered and they predicted that the child to be born would either be a great universal savior or a monarch who ruled widely in northern India. The king, Sudhadana, was perturbed at this information, for he was an ambitious man and of course wanted the future child to be his successor on the throne. And after the infant was born, a prominent ascetic in the kingdom visited the castle and holding the child and gazing down at its body, he perceived all the physical markings that told him that this child would indeed one day be a Buddha. And the ascetic cried profusely because he knew that he would not be alive to hear the teachings that this man would one day give. The king was greatly upset and he determined that he was going to bring this child up in the greatest luxury and abundance that he would protect Siddhartha Gautama from every difficulty of humanity so that his spiritual call would not awaken him. And this is what happened for the first 29 years of his life. The young man lived in great abundance. His every need was taken care of fully protected and insulated from the difficulties of being human. And in his 29th year, he decided to venture outside of the palace walls. For the first time, he bade farewell to his wife and his child and set off for a nearby flower grove. And on his way to the flower grove, he halted his chariot, for he saw something that he'd never seen before. Chandaka, his charioteer, said that this was an old man. Siddhartha was so disturbed by what he'd seen, for this was something from which he'd been protected all his life, that he turned the chariot around and returned to the palace, greatly disturbed. A number of days later, he attempted to get to the flower grove again. And this time he saw a sick person. And Chandaka said to him that everybody that is born is subject to sickness, that this is part of humanity. And again they turned around and returned to the palace. And the third time they set out, and this time they came upon a body lying at the side of the road. And he was told that everybody that is born, irrespective of who they are, will one day also die. <coughs> Returning to the palace, very disturbed, 
they suddenly saw stepping out from a nearby forest a being of great radiance and light, his face shining. And Siddhartha asked his charioteer what this man was and was told that this person had given up the worldly life and had gone into the forest in search of understanding and truth and meaning. And Gautama decided in that moment, in his own call to destiny, that he too would renounce everything that he possessed, all the luxury that surrounded him. And he bade farewell to his wife and child and went forth into homelessness in search of the understanding. It always seems to me when I reflect on the story that the walls that surrounded the palaces in which he lived have today so much become the walls that protect us from those that are getting older, dealing with the difficulties of infirm infirmity, the walls of our nursing homes. And those same walls have to some extent also become the walls of, how, of our hospitals to which we send people when they're ill, when perhaps they might not always necessarily be sent there. When people die, their bodies are taken away to return made up to look more lifelike than often these people did in their last days. We protect ourselves so much from the fundamental truths of humanity. Age is so shunned in our society and youth is so prized and so valued. The Mahabharata is a great Indian epic book and in the Mahabharata somebody is asked what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And the answer is what is most wondrous is that everybody knows that, that others are going to one day grow old and die. And what is wondrous is that nobody really believes that it's going to happen to them. <laughs> the obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away, while the birth announcements in finer print at the side of the same page inform us of our replacements. But we get no grasp from this of the enormity of the scale. There are seven and a half billion of us on the earth, and all seven and a half billion must be dead on schedule within this lifetime. The vast mortality involving something like 70 million each year takes place in relative secrecy. Less than half a century from now, our replacements will have doubled the numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. The Buddha exhorted his nuns and monks and lay followers 
to come to terms with the question of mortality. Not to install fear and terror into their hearts, because that really would just be another prison, another bondage. Rather, he knew that there is so much healing and fullness possible in living with a full appreciation of our mortality, of our eventual death that must come one day. And really in all the great spiritual traditions, it is so true that the central question is really the question of what it means to be born and to die. The central question of the holy life. So how is it then in a society from where we are so protected from the truths of our aging and our death, how is it that we can begin to live our lives with an appreciation of the fundamentals of what it means to be born human? Well, certainly the meditation practice that we do here is the beginning of a direct refuge in the truths of the changeability of all things. For each time we observe our breathing, we are observing a birth and a death. We see the beginning and the ends of every sound and every sight, the arising and passing away of thoughts and emotions and tastes. And it is so true that on whatever level it is that we examine our experience, that there is change happening there all of the time. Where is yesterday? Where is last month, last year, our childhood? The seasons come and go. And really the buds on every tree outside are already manifesting the potential of spring that's around the corner. It seems that to live fully, we really do have to die fully. And the question then is, what is it that we have to die to? For me it seems that we must die to everything that we perceive to be solid in our lives. We must die to the solidity of our self-images, to the solidity of our personalities, to the solidity of the ideas that we have of who we are in terms of our career, in terms of our color, in terms of our sexuality. Dying, of course, too, to the solidity that we might feel is the body in which we live our lives, too. Alan Watts talked about the wisdom of insecurity. Living with the wisdom of the insecurity of life. 
accepting our aging, accepting the changes that come. It's really a hard, a brave and a really courageous practice too, beginning to embrace the enormity of the change that is going on within and without us in every moment. Rumi says, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water's surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. The moth sees the light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go toward the light. Fire is what of God is world-consuming. Water is world-protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To those eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. A life that does not include an appreciation of our death really cannot be full. We really need to let go fully of each moment in order to be able to wholeheartedly enter the next. A number of years ago, I ordained as a monk at a Burmese monastery and the meditation practice that we did there was not the one that we do here. It was a meditation on different parts of the body, 32 in all. And for months and months we did this meditation focusing on different parts of the body, the hair and the skin and the fluids of the body, the bones. And over time, what began to happen was that the, the experience of the solidity of the body really began to break down. And there came to be an experience of this that was just of elements changing moment to moment. There really was no sense of firmness anywhere in the experience of the body after a while. There was a lot of fear there 
Because whenever something that is solid begins to break down, there must be fear. But there at the same time was a real sense of joy because the feeling was that I was in that moment beginning to take a refuge far more in the truth of things. Experiencing the body as something less than solid It was like getting the truth out into the open. The Buddha used to send his nuns and monks and lay people into the cemeteries. He used to send them there not to scare the living daylights out of them or for some morbid or gloomy reason. He would send them into the charnel ground so that people could see the decomposition of the bodies there, that he could see the burning, the people could see the burning of the bodies, so that after a while there could be no part of the hearts of anyone that believed that they too were not going to be subject to that same um, eventuality. Again and again in the scriptures, we're exhorted to come to terms with this question of mortality. Carlos Cast- uh, Don Juan said to Carlos Castanedas, he said that death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been there, and it always will be until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, Turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. One of us here, he said, has to learn that death is the hunter and that it always is to one's left. And there is no need to see your death either. It is sufficient that you feel its presence around you. Last year, I visited South Africa where I was born. And towards the end of my month's stay, I was sitting with my mother in the living room of their little home in Zululand. And my father, who was in bed, called through to us. And we rushed into his bedroom, and he was in the middle of a massive heart attack. I quickly called the doctor, and we each rushed to a side of him and held him as he was going through what was obviously an enormously painful process. It was really nothing like I ever imagined. There was great presence during that time. There was a feeling of reverence too. And each of us whispered 
words of love and tenderness and letting go and gratitude and encouragement into his ears. I watched each of those breaths like I've not ever watched any breath before or after. Nagarjuna says that life is so fragile, more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing that those who think that after an outbreath they will surely breathe in again, or that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. My dad died before the doctor came. And when he did get there, I asked him if he would arrange for the body to remain with us for many, many hours. And what my mother and I did was we went outside and picked some beautiful fronds of bougainvillea that were blooming outdoors and we brought them inside. We changed his pajamas and we cleaned them up, combed his hair, changed the sheets. And for many hours we just sat there holding his hand as his body slowly turned colder. And we loved him and we teased him and we forgave him and we said all the things that we hadn't said when he was still alive. It was unquestionably the most sacred time of my life. And by the time they came and took his body away, it felt that we'd really reached a deep completion. And what I also felt was a full and deep appreciation for this beautiful Dharma that I feel so prepared me for what could have been a horrifying time of my life. I'd gone to South Africa to be with two friends who were living with the AIDS virus. Roy, a man with whom I'd been in relationship many years before, died before I was able to get there. And my friend Michael died soon after I left South Africa. I, of course, had to stay on longer than I anticipated. And so two months passed before I returned to North America. And they were two very, very difficult and challenging months, as you can appreciate. And one week after I returned to North America, sitting in an, the doctor's office in Northampton, I was told that I too was carrying the AIDS virus. And so in that moment, I took my place among what is now 40 of my close friends who have lived with the virus or who are living with this virus. This thing that I'd feared so much was now a part of my life. I found myself in that place that the Buddha had been calling me to get to for so long. 
This evening I'd like to share with you a little of the journey of the last 19 months. Of course, I'd never ever wish to live with this virus in my life, but it's a given now. And what I do know is that there have been many lessons that I would never have lived, at which I would never have learned if the situation had been different. The first days, this was in uh, the 9th of July, I found out. The first days and weeks afterwards were really incredible. They were nothing like I ever thought they would be. There was a feeling of anticipation and a feeling of excitement and even a sense of joy there. It seemed crazy, but it was so true. And as I reflect on that time, I realized that really there were three things going on. One thing was that there was a deep sense of relief that I now knew exactly what my situation was. It had been so painful not knowing. The second thing was, I believe, a healthy response of my heart to reflect uh, to protect me from the enormity of the information I just received. But really the third part of it was what was most significant <coughs> because I knew with every fiber of my being that decisions which I'd not made for so long out of fear and out of a sense of inadequacy would no longer prevent me from making the changes that I knew that I needed to make. And that's exactly what happened. Within the first month, I wound up my career as a financial consultant. It was something that was not nurturing and nourishing for me, although I do know that it made a difference in the lives of other people. It seemed that with death as a yardstick, so many things began to come into focus that were unclear before. Friendships and relationships that were either not nurturing for me or for others just began to fall away. There seemed no place for them any longer. And similarly, many ways of being, where there was perhaps pettiness or there were ways in which uh, I was acting that felt unnecessary or harmful, those just seemed to spontaneously and somewhat even organically just no longer be around anymore. And really that is a process that's continued right up to this day. Death has become an advisor. There seems no question about that. On the other hand, I made what is unquestionably the most important decision of my life around that time. For a number of years, many of my own teachers had been urging me to consider beginning to share the Dharma. And for reasons of feeling inadequate and unprepared and perhaps coy, 
I had not begun to do so. And now with the information, with death as the yardstick, it seemed that I could no longer delay that decision. <coughs> and so now, tonight, as I sit here and do what I'm doing, I can say to you that I know the deepest and greatest fullness and joy that I've ever known in my life. It really seems to me to be a healing into life, the process that these last months have been for me. So what happened then was several months were taken up with a profusion of blood tests and x-rays and visits to the doctor and seeing specialists. It was really horrible. Um, and in the fall of last year, I decided, having got a, sort of a medical network into place, that I would sit the large part of the three-month retreat at IMS. It seemed like that would be a fitting rite of passage from about four or five months that had been the most extraordinary difficult of my life into a future that, of course, I really didn't know what was going to be, what it was going to be about. And when I began that retreat, and really for the first month, it was like this volcano went off inside of me. The hugest fears and rages and terrors and angers were awakened within me. And I just would sit as this volcano would just roar and roar and roar through me. It was so painful. And one day, I was out before sunrise in the woods and I was standing under this tree that was covered in the most beautiful golden leaves. And as the sun came up on the edge and, it's, and the rays tipped the tree under which I was standing, all the leaves in one instant just fell down on my head. It was an amazing moment. And I cried. I cried for the first time. It was like the tears for my father came in that moment. And I just absolutely opened. And this great burden, it felt like, began to shift through me. And I cried for my dad. And I cried for Roy and for Michael, who had died, and I cried for my own lot. And then it seemed as though the crying was about a whole lifetime of sadness. I think the people on retreat must have thought I'd sort of lost it, because I'd be standing there and a beautiful meal would appear on the table at lunchtime and I would burst into tears. You know. It seemed after a while that the crying was just about the sadness. Not my sadness, but just about the sadness, the sadness and the suffering. Everything felt so fragile. There was no part of me that assumed that I would be around to see the leaf that left the tree above my head touch the ground at my feet. I would look out over the meditation hall of the people with whom I was on retreat. And there was a very real part of me that felt a 
deep and profound gratitude that I knew that I was going to die one day. And I wondered how many people in that hall would actually die before me without having the privilege of knowing what I knew then. Thus, so you see this floating world. This is from the Diamond Sutra. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. And as the snow began to come, and it came a lot earlier last year, I began to know a stillness, really, that I'd never known before in the meditation practice or outside of it, too. There was a feeling of happiness and joy. And my mind would say, this is impossible, given what you're dealing with. How on earth could you be happy? And yet it was so much the truth of that time. And this was also a time when the equanimity began to ripen for the first time. And I began to know the really profound joy that there is with a heart that can welcome as wholeheartedly the difficulties in both the body and the mind, as well as the joys that come in the body and the mind. It was a very, very happy time for me. It was really a time of a birthing, of a gratitude and appreciation that was so new. I felt so grateful to be alive. I felt so grateful for each breath that came and went. My refuge, it seemed like the clouds in my heart opened and this great sun came out and my refuge felt like this radiant bright light going off inside of me. There was such, such happiness. I felt so protected. Not protected from dying, because I knew that I was going to die. But I felt protected from the delusion that I was a victim of this AIDS virus. Because I knew with my every cell that I was not on any level a victim. That really all that my experience was about was that I was taking my place in the scheme of things. And that I knew that. And there was so much joy in that understanding. And there was so much relief too. Letting go is a phrase that is so easy to say. And yet, for me, certainly, it has been one of the most difficult lessons of this time. Letting go of the idea of a future. Letting go of good health and ability. Some days it seems that everything reflects what is no longer a part of my life anymore. 
and it seems that out of compassion and love for myself, I have to die to the memories of the way things were. I have to die to Gavin, the athlete, and Gavin, the tennis player, Gavin, the healthy, and Gavin, the perfectly able, so that those are not the yardsticks against which I live my life now. And phrasing these once as a deep sense of loss and grieving, I found to be very difficult. But as I began to see these more as an opportunity for letting go, there came to be a much greater lightness in my heart. This seems like the profoundest act of compassion that I can give myself at this time letting go of the memories and entering into each moment free of the comparison that was there. And really that is the challenge for all of us. Accepting our infirmities and dying to our histories. None of us is really immune from that. In the last months, my symptoms have escalated and at times I've known a pain beyond anything that I imagined possible. The virus's involvement in my neurological and muscular system creates a fire in the nerves and in the muscles that sometimes feels as though it will totally consume me. At these times particularly, I need to be as momentarily present with the pain as I possibly can, because anything more than that is unworkable, is unmanageable, and is completely overwhelming. And this really is the stuff of the meditation practice. And what it is, that is more than the bare experience of that pain is the projections into the future which can be so terrifying and so overwhelming. What is more than the bare experience of the pain are the diagnoses and the prognoses of a medical profession that needs to conceptualize and rigidify a process that is changing. And if I get enmeshed in that gridlock of concepts, there is no space for the healing that I aspire to to happen. I need to be free of those too. I also need to be free of the fear and the ignorance and the anxiety of others that constellates around what it is that I'm dealing with. I cannot afford to allow that to touch me either. And so this possibility that is really the essence of the practice, 
of being just present moment to moment with the bare experience of what I'm dealing with seems to me to be the priceless jewel, the greatest gift that I can give myself in what I'm dealing with. There are times that I feel a gratitude for this virus. Not always, mind you, so don't quote me on that. (laughs) But there are times, and there certainly have been blessings. I'd like to share some of these with you in closing. The first is that my refuge in the Dharma in the teachings of the Buddha, that refuge is absolutely unshakable. There is a strength and a resolve to find the deepest meaning in the nightmare that I'm dealing with, the deepest meaning possible. And this is a profound choice to have in a very difficult situation. It seems to me to be. My refuge in the Sangha, in the community of people, spiritual friends, good friends, is so sure. There are people in my life now, many of them new, who teach and guide and love me in ways that I never ever thought possible before. The lessons of friendship and good spiritual friends have been enormous the last 19 months. (coughs) Long before I was diagnosed, in this great web of interconnection that really unites us all, I knew that when one person carried the AIDS virus, none of us was immune. That really, the truth is that we all are HIV positive, that we all have AIDS. And that in sharing my diagnosis this evening with you, I take refuge in this community too. And in a very real sense, we now here too are all HIV positive. I've come to see too that refuge in the Sangha has much to do also about receiving. That the willingness to receive is a powerful and precious gift that we give one another. In Brattleboro, where I live now, there is a large, vibrant, committed, and cohesive Sangha there. We meet each Sunday evening for two hours and have been doing so since the beginning of July. I've been held and loved and supported deeply by these people in ways that I never ever believed communally possible. The giving 
and the receiving on all the different levels that it can happen have helped create for us up there a gift of Sangha that is really beyond price. I've also been taught precious lessons about self-love. There is an inner tenderness and a gentleness here that was never there before. With the difficulty and the challenge of what I'm dealing with, there really is no time for the lack of forgiveness, the inner conflict and the inner violence that was there before. And another lesson that I've also learned is that there is a possibility for joy and happiness in the midst of the most extreme pain, both physical and psychological, that it is a very real possibility that the two are not exclusive of one another, that within the difficulty there can be a radiance of meaning and deep gratitude. And it is with sadness that I reflect on what it has taken for me to learn the lessons that I've learned. But that really just seems to be the way of things. My hope is that we all may continue to do this dance of healing into life with love and dignity and with hearts and with great hearts that brighten and lighten our path. T.S. Eliot, in closing, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flames are enfolded and the crowned knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. Thank you. May we sit together for a moment, please.
Thank you very much. It was very touching and helpful. Um, this is my own issues. Which are different. Um, when you say that you, you were coming to, after the diagnosis, you thought that you were, had been being led, excuse me, paraphrase, to what the Buddha had, was calling you to, um, the way you talk about your transformation and growth since then is understandable. Um, I want to make sure that that is what you were referring to. And also, who do you mean when you say the Buddha? Okay. What I meant when I said that I was in the place that the Buddha had been urging me to consider for so long was that I felt that I was engaging the question of mortality for the first time in a very real way in my life. When I refer to the Buddha, when I refer to taking refuge in the Buddha, I refer to that part of my heart or my being that knows that there is a possibility for the deepest understanding and he is the symbol of that possibility for me. When you when you meditate, yeah. um, you can see that prayer and is there a God or a Buddha something I, I understand what you mean about that part of your heart. Um, but is there something that you call to this God? No. I, when I meditate, the, the challenge is the challenge of presence, moment to moment, as much as possible. And it's whatever effort and other factors that are there that enable that to happen. Um, there is no injunction outside of myself for help because I don't believe that anything outside um, uh, is able to make whatever effort is necessary. Do you feel that um, I, I guess I have to disagree with you in that um, there's such a thing as it, excuse the terminology terminology but being raised Catholic is the one I have I'm a Buddhist now a grace and that your environment I mean you're not alone and that your environment uh, can give you the grace to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and even your Sunday night meetings are help and your sangha and um, whatever the universe is feeding you with I mean, really, do you think you're doing it all by yourself? 
<laughs> I've no quarrel with what he's saying. Okay, I'm not trying to be confrontational, mm. but I am mm. trying to understand these things myself. Mm. Also, my own my own path, and uh, you've done a lot of work, and apparently you have more to do. If someone offered you a cure now, would you take it? I mean, a physical of your physical ailment. <laughs> <laughs> I'd knock you all over to get there. such gratitude about coming to that place where the Buddha is urged you to come. Do you know what my dream is? My dream is that. Um, I'm 40 years old now. My dream is that I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a lot of mileage out of this thing, and I'm gonna do all the work that I need to do, and then one day I'm gonna get the Boston Globe, and it's gonna say that they've got a cure, and I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get the injection, and it's like, I'm gonna have my whole life. It's gonna be great. I've done all my work. <laughs> 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 Thank you. May I say one other Of course. <laughs> um, when we were sitting upstairs, there was a reading, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's just like no enemy could hurt you. Um, if you had a right mind or whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. And no parents could help you as much as your own uh, right mind. And yet to get to that spot, we have to go through what you described, you know, crying if a leaf falls on you, or, you know, just all this agony. And it would seem or anger, a lot of anger, a lot of calling out with great anger. Um, and it would seem that a, a, a song that was into grace and support would accept that anger as you go through it, or the crying as you go through it, without judgment. And that's what I'm asking for myself. I mean, you know, one of the truths of this experience is that it's extremely difficult for a lot of people. And uh, t to some extent, there has been a significant change in the gathering of people, you know, in my life since this process began. You know, and that's okay. At first, it was really difficult when I sensed, you know, some friends moving away and some, you know, that seemed, how can they do that? But I really came to see that, you know, um, uh, certainly that for, for every person that needed to pull away for whatever reason, there was somebody that came closer. In fact, it happened, you know, more. So there's greater abundance now than ever before. And so those that are able to receive, you know, the various 
sometimes great ways in which we need to do the emotional work associated with living with this virus, um, those that can be there and welcome it and receive it and support me are great blessings in my life. But it's not in judgment of those that are not. It's just this, the way of things, you know. It's the changing patterns like waves on the beach, you know. Um, <coughs> just that I really, uh, I rarely do this anymore, but that I, I bow to your, um, your willingness and your openness to put your stuff out. And I was thinking as you were talking that it's both, I know, probably a difficult thing to do. You know, there's a tendency, I think, to want to keep this stuff in and keep it private, almost as a way of making you know, making believe that it's not happening. But that there's also this, uh, it's an incredible gift, I think, both to yourself and to the community to, to put it, to, to talk about it, you know, and it's part of, I think, a, a healing process, I know, for me to hear you speak, and I know it must be part of a healing process for you, and I think it feeds a larger healing process, you know, not only about AIDS, but about there's just the whole sickness that, in you know, was part of our community at this time. So, I mean, community, I mean, the world, the whole place. Mm. So, I really thank you for um, for speaking about your experience. I think that's the greatest teaching that uh, that we all have to offer each other. something but I'm really not sure what it is or how to put it in English and I speak <laughs> Zulu <laughs> now, I'm just going to say something and we'll see if it makes any sense okay <laughs> Trudy might be able to answer it <laughs> let me tell you my problem <laughs> Um, something that I've been going through a lot in terms of um, living with my own illness has to do with um, renunciation. That in a certain way, um, so many of the things that my illness makes me unable to do, um, you know, there was so, such a long period of time of such fight with that, such anger and difficulties in accepting it. Um, and more and more, I've often felt sort of um, guilty because I get sort of glad about the limitations. Um, almost as if, well, now I don't have to worry about that anymore. I just can't do it. And there's sometimes a joy that comes up with it. And then on the other hand, there are days when, or moments, not full days, but moments where it's like, 
you know, there's so many things that I feel like, well, it's true, I have this illness, but I'm not, you know, it's, I don't have a life-threatening diagnosis, so maybe I could, you know, get my life together in such a way that I could have these things, even though I can't have all of them. And I just, it feels like, oh God, it would be so much work just to get that, that thing that seems so great, and it would just be so much work, and then, you know, it would be impermanent anyway, so who cares? You know, and I don't, <laughs> I feel like I have a question for you in this, but <laughs> more and more I just feel like I want, like, there are things that even with my illness I could do that I don't even know if I want to anymore. There's just more and more of a desire to renunciate. Hmm. One of the things that I've seen is that, um, I, for me, the most difficult thing about the, this experience is not um, the extent of the pain, and it's also not the extent of the emotional pain that is there, but it's the relentlessness of it, that it just doesn't stop, that, you know, I have this dream that I'm one day going to have like interludes where I can have a week on and a week off, you know, and, or, or a, week, uh, a week off and three weeks on even, just a time when I can regroup and regather, you know. And um, that hasn't happened, but I have seen that on days when I feel where the symptoms are not really strong, that I feel a little lost, that it's almost like I see that that um, that because uh, the pain is there pretty much all the time, and it's being dealt with in whatever way, the, when it's not there in a significant way, it's almost like who I am. becomes a little confusing because who I seem to have been is somebody in relation to the pain most of the time, you know. And so, um, you know, I was speaking to somebody who, is dealing, who dealt with a very severe crippling neurological um, disease for about five years, and the most difficult part of her healing process was disentangling herself from all the levels at which she believed that she was a sick person, that she couldn't believe, her fiber cannot believe that, that she was actually going to be well and do everything again, you know. It was really difficult, that was the most difficult part of it all, you know. So, you know, that's where the practice for me is so important, it's just trying to be present without the unworkability of all the projections and the extra, so that it's not Gavin in relation to the pain, but it's just the pain, and it's just the fear, and the rage, and the, you know, whatever seems to be the real kindness, you know, because the extent to which I'm embroiled in it, and I'm in there feeling very solid, is the extent to which I'm creating all sorts of levels of suffering, you know. Even when the pain's not there, I mean, it's so dumb, you know.
I don't think that quite sort of answers your question. <laughs> well, it feels um, one of the things that, that felt really related to it was when you described the the feeling of lostness when the pain leaves a little bit. It's almost, it's not like, I mean, I, I know what you mean, you'd like to you'd knock everybody over to get to that cure, but at the same time, the pain keeps you awake. And so then what you're talking about when you're talking about not getting embroiled and lost in it too is also you're describing part of the process of being awake that feels related to what i'm saying mm-hmm. i think that you know with renunciation it's the the issue of getting lost in things outside of myself that keeps me asleep and that maybe that's what i'm sort of bottoming out with hmm. i you know I'm so grateful for the Dharma, you know, that I've been practicing for how many, however many years I did before this came along. Because I know that it gives me choices that I would never have had before, you know. And, you know, in giving a talk like this, there's no part of me that in any way is trying to say that I'm living in a state of equanimity and balance every moment of my life now. I mean, it feels the exact opposite so much, you know. But um, there's no question it's made a huge difference, you know. And I, I just feel so sure that the greatest gift that I can give to myself is presence in each moment, as many moments as possible. Just being there and the wider ramifications of that are totally unimportant, you know. And so in the end it's really that simple, which is also wonderful because it's such a complex thing to be dealing with, you know. It's just so complex, you know. And so mysterious, you know. I was with my doctor today and, you know, you know, we were like slashing our way through a, through the through the brush, not really getting anywhere. What I needed to do, you know, try this, try that, maybe this, you know, we don't know, could be, might be, you know, don't know why, you know. This I've seen before, you know. You know. What do you mean by suffering? It's the mental experience of the physical pain. Um, I'm not sure I totally understand your question, but I'm going to answer it. And if I don't, tell me. We can explore it further. Um, 
um, if what happens habitually is that when the pain arises, um, there's aversion to it, you know? And so there's like resistance around it and there's holding around it. And that's over and above what's already there, you know? And then if it's really severe, then fear can come up too. So there's the pain, the aversion, and the fear, you know? And then I might get angry, which is just a little bit more, you know? And so what that means is that really what was originally there is, you know, is probably nothing compared to what I've added on. And so just trying to just be present with that pain and not allow or not just being present really doesn't allow for the extra. Because if there's just the pain, then just being with it, accepting it, allowing it to have life and death, you know, because it must go eventually in some way, it'll change, you know. But not getting into a tangle with it just seems to be the most workable way of dealing with it, you know. And that's one of the reasons why there is a real intensity of, of like inner commitment to the Dharma, because I see that so much, and it's what makes the most sense. It makes a lot more sense than the pills that I'm taking, you know, and the nonsense I read in the newspapers, you know. So I would be a fool not to, to do it, it seems to me, you know. Oh yeah, because I also have difficulty sleeping, and so that definitely affects, you know, how how buoyant one can be with it. And um, you know, I mean, it's a debilitating virus. It, it works on a number of different levels concurrently, and so um, it's a it's a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let me share my experience listening to you. And um, it's really inspiring to hear, um, you know, what what is happening to you for me, and I'm sure the rest of us also. Um, when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, how, you know, can I do that? What you're doing, and I, you know, want to open up and let go in a in as profound a way as you are. Um, and then I was just sitting there and then, I can't do that. And I feel like victimized that I can't be that open. Hmm. You, know, you know, I'm not sick or anything, but I feel like I don't deserve this. You know? What do you have to say about that? <laughs> Well, um, the Buddha said that one of the most conducive um, factors for meditation practice is good health. And that if you have good health, 
make the most of it because that will change too one day. And so, you know, go for it. I mean, one of the reasons I do this, you know, I've given this talk is, um, you know, hopefully just to, to really say that, that life is so precious and it is so fleeting that it can change in any moment. And it might be that three moments from now, you know, your situation could be totally different. And from where I sit now, you know, I see that the greatest gift that anybody can have is the opportunity to do the most important work of being born human, whatever that is and whatever form that is. And don't waste time, you know. It's like, you know, it's over the left shoulder, you know. What I said was that my refuge in the Dharma feels absolutely unshakable and that there is this real resolve to find whatever meaning there is in this experience for me. And, you know, the meaning that has happened is really the essence of this talk. And if there is any... um, there's a, there's a Navajo saying that, you know, I give thanks for blessings that are already on their way, you know. So, whatever's going to come, I mean, I'm, my arms are wide open, you know. But I don't have any framework of expectation, you know. But I do know that the question is a much greater question than Gavin who is living with the AIDS virus or who's HIV positive or who has AIDS or whatever. It's a much greater question than that. Who am I? What does it mean to live? What is fullness? What does it mean to love? You know, these are, for me, the questions. I don't know, of course, you know, the answers, all of them. I don't know. I was thinking as I was rehearsing my question, people do, I was... Uh, the question that I knew was the question of meaning. As we, um, I thought about the phrase I used, I, your talk meant a lot to me. So I used the word meaning. So it's sort of locked in there somewhere. I understand that there is tea upstairs. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.